0: Welcome to the AANEM podcast series, a monthly discourse on recent publications in neuromuscular and electrodiagnostic literature, featuring interviews with the authors and other experts, brought to you by the American Association of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine. The AANEM welcomes your comments, suggestions, and questions. Email them to aanem at aanem.org. Hello, AENEM podcast listeners. My name is Chilvana Patel. I'm an Associate Professor and Neurology Residency Training Director at University of Texas Medical Branch, Galveston. It is my pleasure to be interviewing Dr. Jeffrey Allen, who is an Associate Professor in Department of Neurology at University of Minnesota, Minnesota, about his recently published articles in Muscle and Nerve in November 2022. On Diagnosis and Treatment of Chronic Inflammatory Demyelinating Polyneuropathy, CIDP. Dr. Allen, welcome to AANEM podcast.
1: Thank you. It's nice to join you today.
0: Thank you. Chronic Inflammatory Demyelinating Polyneuropathy, or as we commonly use the term CIDP, is a chronic immune-mediated peripheral nerve disorder. CIDP is defined by clinical and electrophysiological criteria. Clinically, CIDP is characterized by progressive numbness and weakness over two or more months, and electrophysiologically we define as demyelinating polyneuropathy on neuroconduction studies. At present, more than 15 sets of diagnosis criteria exist, which complicates the situation furthermore for clinicians regarding which one to choose when we diagnose. And still, so we do not have well criteria for CIDP variants. CIDP is treatable, and delay in treatment can result in lifelong disability. It becomes prime importance for us to obtain accurate diagnosis and provide relevant treatment promptly obtain optimal patient care. Today, we will discuss about diagnosis and treatment approach for CIDP. Before we go in details about the diagnosis and treatment, Dr. Allen, could you please provide epidemiology of CIDP and why it is so important to diagnose CIDP early?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. CIDP affects between one and nine persons per 100,000. And although any age can be affected, the average age of onset is in the fifth decade of life. And the prevalence peaks between 70 and 79 years of age. So it's a rare disease, but one of those that generally finds its way to our clinics, especially those of us that see a lot of neuropathy patients. So why is it so important to diagnose early and treat promptly? Well, a few reasons. First, we know that disability may be substantial in these patients. At some point during their illness, more than half of patients that are affected by CADP are unable to live an independent existence. So that's quite a bit of disability. Second, we know that axon loss is one predictor of increased and potentially irreversible disability. Then consider that the average time to diagnosis in our patients is between 12 and 40 months from symptom onset to diagnosis. So the longer diagnosis is delayed, the long period treatment is delayed. And during that time, disability accumulates and some of that disability is potentially irreversible no matter what we do.
0: Thank you, Dr. Allen. So I was just going over your article and I always come across this uh, difficulty. How do we define typical CIDP and CIDP variant and what should be our approach as a neuromuscular expert here?
1: Right, so we define typical CIDP as patients that have that characteristic clinical pattern of relatively symmetric proximal and distal numbness and weakness that evolves over two months or more in a progressive or relapsing fashion. And on examination, these patients invariably have reduced or absent deep tendon reflexes in their upper and lower limbs. So the, the guidelines, the E A N PNS guidelines, which are an update of the EFNS PNS guidelines to use that clinical definition for typical CIDP. The variants that have names that fall under the CIDP umbrella vary in that they have different patterns of numbness or weakness. So the named variants include the distal variant or distal CIDP where patients get numb and weak, but it's all distally usually below the knees and sometimes in the hands. There's a multifocal variant of CADP in which numbness and weakness happen, but they tend to follow name nerve distribution. So it's patchy and asymmetric. Multifocal CADP also goes by the name of MADSAM or Lewis Sumner syndrome. It all refers to the same thing. There's a sensory variant of CADP where patients get numb, but not weak. And then there's a motor variant of CADP where patients get weak, but not numb. The importance with those though, is that the pattern is otherwise like typical CADP where that numbness and weakness or weakness is relatively symmetric and proximal and distal. So this is not our patients with, with distal sensory sensory loss. It's really more of a, a proximal and distal pattern than, than that. So when I'm thinking about the diagnosis, the first thing is to see if the clinical features fit one of these patterns. If not, your likelihood of CADP is pretty low. If yet, yes, then we'll move on to the nerve conduction studies next. And on those studies, I'm looking for clear evidence indicating peripheral nerve demyelination. It's beyond our discussion today to really get into the specifics, but I rely upon the EAN PNS guidelines to help you know if the changes that I see on the nerve conductions are strong enough to support that diagnosis of CIDP. So for example, if there's conduction velocity slowing, how slow should it be in order to really support that diagnosis? That's all spelled out in the guidelines. And if I see those changes that do not meet those thresholds within the guideline, then I'll need to think about a different diagnosis. If they do meet the electrodiagnostic criteria, then the next step is to make sure there's no better explanation for the clinical and electrophysiologic findings. And if nothing else jumps up, then a diagnosis of CIDP can be made with a reasonably high degree of probability.
0: Thank you. Even with this utilizing the clinical criteria And demyelinating criteria. Sometimes the nerve conduction studies comes equivocal or uncertain. When and what additional tests help us to gear our diagnosis towards CIDP?
1: Right. Some cases are pretty straightforward, and it's either clearly CIDP or clearly not CIDP. But certainly there's a a gray zone where some of our patients may fall into, where the clinical features are plausible and the electrophysiologic features show some some suggestion of demyelination, but not enough to be highly confident. It's in these cases where the collection of things like spinal fluid or imaging with MRI and ultrasound can be helpful. And in rare cases, a nerve biopsy can be helpful if you're needing to exclude things like vasculitis or amyloid or sarcoid or, or things like lymphoma. So we might also rely on a test of treatment in which we put patients on a CDP treatment and look for objective evidence of improvement. It's important to comment that while all of these things can increase diagnostic confidence. If they're present, none should be considered diagnostic in isolation and all are dotted with potential fit- pitfalls. So for example, we know that mild and moderate CSF protein elevations can be seen in things like diabetes or spondylosis or even normal with, with increasing age. So we need to interpret those changes cautiously. We also need to know that a test, if a test of treatment is used to support a diagnosis, it's really important to be as objective as possible in interpreting those
0: results, at times we come across demyelinating neuropathies on nerve conduction studies. What does help us to differentiate CIDP from CIDP mimics like POEM syndrome or CMTs? How should we approach those?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and these might be some of the more challenging CIDP mimics that we encounter in clinical practice. And the issue becomes especially relevant for patients that have that distal phenotype. So especially for these patients, I always have in mind the possibility of genetically determined neuropathies, home syndrome, and amyloid. And it's one reason that a really aggressive pursuit of monoclonal gammopathies is is an important part of the diagnostic workup for CIDP. Considering the widespread availability of genetic testing nowadays, I've got a pretty low threshold to obtain genetic testing for patients thought to have CIDP, especially if they have a distal phenotype or they've got a chronically progressive course or if they don't respond to first-line treatments. The other thing to think about is the testing for the autoimmune neuropathies in patients with demyelinating neuropathies, but that also have marked tremor or on exam. And especially if those patients don't respond to first-line therapy, if you do detect a neurofascin or a contact in one antibody, and that may have some important treatment implications.
0: Thank you, Dr. Allen. Let's change the gears here now and uh talk about treatment. As we know that CIDP is clinically heterogeneous disease and all patients do not respond equally to same immunomodulatory treatment. What are immunomodulatory treatments are considered as a first-line options, and how do you choose amongst them?
1: Right, so where does treatment start? We always start treatment with proven effective therapies. Those proven effective therapies include IVIG, corticosteroids, and plasmapheresis. Each of these is evidence-based with similar overall efficacies, although some studies suggest that IVIG might be a bit more effective than, than steroids. So if you look at any of one of these three individual therapies, about 50 to 70% of patients will respond to one, and an additional 50% of non-responding patients will improve when you put them on a second therapy. So the overall response rate is 80 to close to 90%. There's no consensus on which of these is, is best although tolerability of plasmapheresis restricts its use to severely affected or otherwise treatment refractory individuals. The decision to begin treatment with either IVIG or cortical steroids is largely driven by relative contraindications and access to those treatments.
0: Dr. Allen, could you please go over the induction protocol which is utilized for IVIG steroids and plasmapheresis in patients with CIDP?
1: Sure. I'd be happy to do that. So for several studies, I've looked at IVIG dosing protocols. And when I start IVIG, I favor initiation of an evidence-based regimen of two grams per kilogram loading followed by one gram per kilogram every three weeks for initial maintenance. There's other protocols that use smaller doses more frequently, and those might make some sense uh, as well. But I typically go with a gram per kilogram every three weeks for at least when I start maintenance. There's also some data to say that even higher maintenance doses might be helpful in some of our patients, two grams per kilogram every three or four weeks instead of our standard one gram per kilogram. But a gram per kilogram is usually where I start. The ideal induction doses for corticosteroids is a little bit less well-defined. Both high-dose pulse steroids and daily oral corticosteroids are reasonable, although pulse therapy may be a bit better tolerated than daily oral therapy. To be honest, they don't use a lot of daily oral corticosteroids very often anymore for CIDP, but if this approach is selected, then prednisone 16 milligrams daily for four to eight weeks, followed by a slow taper would be a reasonable approach. Pulse corticosteroid regimens that, have been con- that can be considered include IV-methylprednisolone, 500 milligrams daily for four days, or oral dexamethasone, 40 milligrams for four days. And those four-day courses of either IV-methylpred or oral dexamethasone are typically repeated every four weeks, although for some patients, sh- shorter intervals may be needed. Plasma exchange is typically started with five exchanges over 10 days or an exchange every other day. And then thereafter, that can be individually adopted depending on what that patient needs.
0: Thank you, Dr. Allen. So let's see, once we start the patient on first-line treatment, we started the induction phase when Do we see the benefit of the treatment and how do we confirm that, you know, there is an actual objective benefit from the treatment for the patients with CIDP?
1: Sure. So most patients that are going to respond to IVIG do so within, by the third or fourth infusion. So that would be within three months or so if you treat them every three to four weeks. Some would say that there are some patients that need longer to respond, so up to six months. But really all of our patients in IVIG should be responding by three to six months. And if they don't respond by then, it's time to think about something different. Corticosteroids may take a bit longer to respond, but it's generally within that three to six month range that I'm looking for some convincing evidence for for response. And how do we monitor those treatment responses objectively? It's really important to, to do that. And so I'll always look for things that are as objective as possible when I'm measuring treatment response, especially if I'm using that in order to justify you know, ongoing treatment or confirmed diagnosis. The scales that I like to use are assessments of disability and assessments of strength impairment. So in disability assessments that are commonly used are things like the NCAT disability or the IRODS disability scale. Both are free and publicly available. For strength impairment, I like to do MRC scores and handheld grip strength I find handheld grip strength especially helpful because it's so easy to do and you get immediately available quantifiable results. For selected patients, I might check some other things like a sensory sum score or maybe a walking test like a timed up and go or a 10 meter walk. You know, those can be helpful for some patients. Although all of us have busy, busy clinics and it's tough to fit more things into our, our examination, I find this that only take a couple of minutes to do and are quite frankly more helpful than many of the other things we do during our clinic visits to to follow patient's response to treatments.
0: I agree, Dr. Allen. So going forward, now, as we discussed before, about 80 to 90% of CIDP patients respond to first-line therapy. But there are still 10% of patients who do not respond to to first-line therapy. What should we do next when the first-line treatment fails?
1: Yeah, that's indeed a tricky situation. What do we do when the first-line therapies don't work? The patient that's refractory to multiple proven effective therapies, so IVIG, steroids, and plasma exchange is really a unique patient. And the number you've quoted quoted is right, that about 90% of patients probably respond to one of these. So we often think about response to treatment as being supportive of a CIDP diagnosis. And even that rationale is built into the EAN-PNS diagnostic guidelines. But if we use response to treatment as a tool to increase our confidence in the diagnosis, then the opposite should really also be true. And that meaning that with each evidence-based treatment that does not work, our confidence that we got the diagnosis right really goes down. And so with each failed treatment, the first thing to do is to stop and think about the diagnosis. Did we get it right? Is it the drug that's wrong or is it instead the diagnosis that we got wrong? So I always go, we go through that diagnostic process for every evidence-based first line treatment that fails. And if we go through that process and still the conclusion is that it's CIDP, then there might be some things to think about for, for treatment. So next line treatments that might be considered are things like Tuximab, cyclosporine, or perhaps even cyclophosphamide for induction therapy. But the evidence in support of each of these is really limited to small case series and anecdotal reports and the decision To proceed with one of these really needs to take into account individual disease severity, comorbidities, previous treatment attempts, and the risk analysis. And as with the case with the other first-line therapies, if no objective benefit is appreciated within three to six months, then the intervention should be stopped and rethink about what what the diagnosis is.
0: And Dr. Allen, what do you think about Imuran and uh, use of mycophenolate in this situation? Because as we know, it takes very long time to actually start working and helping the patients.
1: Right. So those other immunosuppressive therapies, Imuran or azathioprine, mycophenolate would fall into that category and perhaps methotrexate as well. Very poor data evidence that these have any any role for the treatment of CADP. However, there may be a role for them off-label in certain situations. I don't like them at all for induction therapy just because, as you said, they take so long to work if they work at all. They may have a role for those patients of ours that uh, are clearly dependent on first-line therapies like IVIG or corticosteroids, and we need some help getting them off. Uh, There may be a role for for them in in that situation, but um, the evidence, again, is, is very, very, very thin.
0: And I was also reading Dr. Ellen, in your article that about 33% of patients with CIDP can be successfully weaned off immunomodulatory therapy. How long do you want to maintain the patient on immunomodulatory therapy and when should we consider to start weaning off the immunomodulatory therapy?
1: Yeah, it's a great question with a difficult answer. And yeah, we know that about 30% of patients are able to achieve a state of drug-free remission where immunotherapy is no longer Needed. And if we can get our patients off immunotherapy, that's of course really great. The problem is we don't have any disease activity biomarker that tells us if a patient has active disease or not. So the only way to get insight into their disease activity status is periodic immunotherapy taping while monitoring the, cli- uh, the clinical response. So there's no you know, best protocol or best advice on how to how to do this, but I'll typically take a look at disease activity with IVIG or steroid wean attempts once or twice a year in newly diagnosed patients. And if they prove uh, that they're dependent on those therapies after a couple of trials, then I'll spread that out uh, to do it less, less frequently. This gives us some insight into whether the IVIG is needed. And if so, if you taper or spread out infusions and you do Uh, document a well-defined relapse, then at least you might know the optimal dose and frequency for for that that individual patient. When doing this, it's really important to monitor with some of those outcomes that we discussed earlier earlier, so that you can really justify the need for ongoing therapy in a bit of a more objective way.
0: And is there any role of a combination treatment Means patient who is already on IVIG and partially responding to the IVIG is there any role to add steroids, other immunomodulatory agents at that time?
1: Yeah, if you've got patients that have a partial response or responses where you seem to clearly be dependent on IVIG or steroids, but not to a satisfactory degree, you've got a couple of different options. One, you could in- increase the first line therapy that you're on to see if you can squeeze any more benefit out of it. So increase the dose of IVIG or shorten the frequency. Or you could consider adding. You know, corticosteroids to IVIG or IVIG to corticosteroids, depending on what they're on first. Although that approach has not been studied in clinical trials, at least clinical trials to date. There is one study that's actually trying to address that very question that's currently enrolling patients treated with both IVIG and steroids at the same time to see if that combination therapy gives us some added benefit, but at least from an evidence standpoint, we don't have that, that data right now.
0: Thank you, Dr. Allen. What is the role of subcutaneous immunoglobulin in the management of CIDP?
1: Yeah, So in my practice, any patient that demonstrates IVIG dependency is a potential candidate for subcutaneous IG, and it really all comes down to personal preference. So I just discuss the pros and cons with every patient and let them decide which way they want to go. It might be especially a good option for patients with difficult IV access, those that seek more autonomy with those their treatment, and those that have frequent side effects to IVIG, like headaches and nausea. Subcutaneous Ig tends not to be a good option for patients that have, have needle phobias. From a dosing standpoint, we know that sub-Q Ig doses of 0.2 grams per kilogram weekly or 0.4 grams per kilogram weekly are proven effective for prevention of relapse when used to CADP maintenance. But from a practical standpoint, I usually start dosing subcutaneous Ig according to the patient's equivalent IVIG dose requirements you know, rather than a strict lower high dose protocol as was studied in clinical trials.
0: Thank you. Dr. Allen. many of our CIDP patients also have disabilities and physical therapy, occupational therapy becomes very important for them. So my next question is that many of our patients also suffer with the pain and fatigue uh, which brings significant comorbidities to their daily quality of life, how do you address this?
1: Yeah, it's a really important uh, thing to discuss with all of our patients. And we're, we're very, very focused on strength and weakness and gait and some other uh, functional aspects of the disease. And we wanna focus our, our discussions on immunotherapy, but there's really a whole other side to managing CADP patients with you know, addressing things like pain and fatigue. And one important message is that these symptoms, although they're really important to tr- address, should not be really driving the immunotherapy plan. Instead, supportive management is favored in these, these patients for things like pain and fatigue, just as it would be for any other type of neuropathy. So I typically use approaches to neuropathic pain in order to publish guidelines, including things like pregabalin or gabapentin or SNRIs. For fatigue, it's also a very difficult uh, symptom to try to uh, help patients out with. And there's no good evidence-based trials to know how best to address fatigue in patients with CADP. But we know that it can be common in patients both during the active phase of their disease and also when they're in pharmacological uh, remission. So the best approach to fatigue is in CADP is unknown, but routine exercise has been shown to be beneficial for some patients. And so I'll typically encourage balance between energy conservation and safe ability appropriate exercise program. And maybe one other comment, when we do encounter patients that have really a predominance of things like like pain or other symptoms like fatigue or weight loss, it's really important to remember that these are unusual things to happen in, in CIDP. So if pain is at the forefront of the clinical diagnosis, it's really important to think about things like poems, vasculitis, amyloidosis rather than, than CIDP.
0: Thank you, Dr. Allen. Also, some of CIDP patients, particularly variant CIDP patients, also present with tremors. And what should be our approach to treat these tremors?
1: Yeah, tremor is another, another common symptom that some patients have. If I see tremor that's really prominent, tremor and ataxia, That's one situation that you really wanna start thinking about the autoimmune nodopathies, neurofashion 155, neurofashion 140, contact one, Casper one. These patients that harbor these antibodies tend to have a really prominent tremor. So it's something to think about. If there's no other uh, antibody that's recognized, then I'll treat the tremor sometimes with supportive or symptomatic therapies with things like propranolol, which, you know, takes the edge off in some patients, although it's not a, a perfect solution. Tremor can be very difficult to treat in these patients.
0: And just going a little bit over autoimmune nautopathies, they tend not to respond to IVIG. What is your approach to treat patients with autoimmune neuropathies?
1: Yeah, it's still, my approach is still to follow treatment guidelines for, for typical you know, CADP or CADP with without the, the antibodies. And so I'll still start with IVIG. And although it's true that their response tends to not to be as re- robust as a patient without an antibody, still some patients do respond to it. Uh, and I've had some success with it there. In patients that don't respond, uh, corticosteroids are often next. They might respond a little bit better to those. You know, but really our, our fallback with the autoimmune nodopathies is B cell depleting therapies, where although we need a clinical trial to really show us uh, exactly when and where to use rituximab and CDP with or without neurofashion, you know, the case uh, series and anecdotal reports of improvement with B cell depleters in the unique situation of autoimmune nodopathies is is pretty strong. So I, I tend to use that that infrequently for the for that particular um, condition.
0: Thank you, Doctor Allen. We appreciate your time and participation to help our listener. And I personally learned a lot from your recent articles. Thank you so much again.
1: Thank you very much for having me, supplier.